podcast, your association's no-fluff playbook to navigating and thriving in Industry 4.0 or the digital marketplace. Each week, we bring expert insights to help you and your association stay ahead of the curve. Hello, my name is Sharon Rice, and I'm the Managing Director of Business Strategy for .orgsource, an association consultancy. And today I'm your host for this episode of the Association 4.0 podcast. We're going to be talking about trust today. Trust has been in decline for a number of years. According to the 2021 Edelman Trust Barometer, less than 50% of global survey respondents trust government leaders, religious leaders, journalists, or CEOs to do what is right. In addition, less than 50% of respondents find CEOs, non-governmental organization representatives, and boards of directors to be very or extremely credible sources of information about their organization. During this podcast, we're going to explore the decline of trust and how it's impacting associations, and also how we can restore trust in our work, our organizations, and our leaders. Tackling this issue with me is Bill Bruce. Bill is the CEO of the American Association of Nurse Anesthesiology. Bill joined AANA in 2022, having previously served as the CEO of the American College of Occupational and Environmental Medicine and the CTO of the American College of Orthopedic Surgeons. So Bill, welcome, and thanks for joining me today. Thank you, Sharon, it's good to be here. So when I was considering the topic of this podcast, I thought of you immediately because I know that building trust was a priority for you in your early work with ANA. Can you tell me a little bit about why you made building trust such a cornerstone of this um, beginning time as an association CEO? Yeah, well, I think I think the big impetus for it was um, um even during the onboarding process in this organization, I could perceive that there were uh, that the tr the trust and lack of trust was something that that had come up repeatedly in a number of avenues. And there's, you know, it, it, it seems to be something that the whole organization has to deal with, both amongst um, board members to board members, previous uh, iterations of the board to current uh, the current iteration of the board to probably the next iteration of the board between the board and staff, from the CEO to staff, and even from all of us to our members individually. Uh, you know, there have been examples where there, the lack of trust has definitely hurt the organization. And so for me, it's, it's um, absolutely essential that we find a way to develop a new culture of trust within the organization and the profession if we're going to survive and be successful collectively. And um, that's why we started this way. And I, for me, uh, trust, um, it can only start at the top. It has its source at the top. If there is no trust at the president and board and CEO level of an organization, then there's going to be no trust beneath that. And that will cascade out all the way down to every everyday members, uh, to the lowest staff, and it will hurt the organization if you don't have it. So if we think about it kind of from that, from multiple perspectives, the you're talking about really, you know, trust between your members in the organization, trust between your staff and you as a CEO, trust between you and the board of directors. 
um, it, it's it's multifaceted. And it was interesting when I was reading the surveys. One of the things that stood out to me, even in that Edelman um, barometer, trust barometer, was that today employees are likely to put more trust in the companies that they work for than um, other organizations, making it seem like the closer you are to that source of uh, of information, the more likely you are to believe it and to have, you know, kind of faith in it. Does that make sense to you? It, it's like all politics is local. Is it become the case that all trust is local? Yeah, well, I think I think there's a certain, it makes perfect sense to me. I think this is in line with you know, sort of the, the bubble theory of mm-hmm. social interactions that, that, that we see, you know, and, and you tend to um, have a stronger affinity for the people that you're closer to uh, online and in the real world. And so you, part of that is you, you, you are closer to witnessing the experiences of those people. And um, that, that gives you a little bit of um, a bias towards favoring them. And it's easy, it's easy to develop more trust with, you know, more exposure. Uh, you have more experience with with individuals that are nearer, and 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 workplaces are um, absolutely one of those things where where it can be a better, a stronger source of trust. Um, you know, it, it, that all that gets down to the behaviors of individual environments and how what the culture is within those environments and and the history of. Um, of credibility that mm-hmm. that may or may not exist, all of those will, will color that to sort of the opportunity uh, to develop a strong sense of trust with a closer community, uh, whichever, however you're defining that, is, is absolutely there. And it's something that I do see. Yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting to me. I'm doing a lot of work right now looking at, um, I would say, the decline of membership, even, you know, within physician-based organizations or clinical societies, medical societies. Um, and we tend to kind of lay that at a generation's feet to say that, for example, millennials are less likely in some way to join the professional association than uh, certainly, certainly the baby boomer counterparts that are now, you know, for the most part, out of the workforce, almost um, entirely out of the workforce. And as I started looking at trust, I, I also started kind of trying to think, is this is the um, disinclination um, to belong to an association, is that really generational? or And is it a coincidence that we've been seeing the steady decline of trust throughout the millennials kind of experience? Um, is Is there a trust factor here that's making it difficult for us to recruit and retain younger members of associations. That's an interesting perspective. And as you were, as you were setting that up, I was thinking about this and um, uh, for those who don't know me, I'm, I'm very obviously a a Gen Xer. (laughs) And so I've spent a, a, a good number of years now straddling this, you know, the perceptions of the boomer generation with millennials mm-hmm. and those come sense. And, um, and so I think, you know, it, it's, it's tempting to lay accountability at the feet of generational differences here. Mm-hmm. 
I think there are patterns that are common from the perspectives of these different generations that do influence um, an individual's propensity to join an organization. They're looking for different things. And certainly for some, and I'm, I've, this is one of the things that I'm, I've had to deal with in, in my current role and my past role, and, and it's not uncommon that others in CEO roles for associations have to are struggling with this right now is there are, you have, you have, your your um your wiser more seasoned members who've been around for decades um they value a completely different set of things typically in membership than newer members and the the thing that 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 I find myself attempting to do is is finding a way to balance the expectations and needs and desires of the, you know, our former presidents, of people who are, you know, decades-long members who um, love and built uh, an organization that was very close to them. Mm-hmm. And it, unfortunately, sometimes they want things that are um, diametrically opposed to what our younger members say they want in an organization. And balancing these two different things um, means that at some point you have to you have to make a choice of picking one over the other. And um, that, you know, so you, you risk losing the engagement and loyalty of lifelong members who are probably now some of your biggest foundation contribution sources. If you have a pack, they're, they're probably the most involved in the pack um, on a, on a, you know, pound for pound by the dollars standpoint. But if you're starting to see the member acquisition and retention of newer people coming into the profession beginning to suffer, um, it's likely that your everything that you have may be misaligned with what their expectations are. And part of that might be attributable to differences in generations. And I think, you know, I have I have people who I've worked with over the years that I think are um not appropriately classified by generation. I mm-hmm. think mindsets um, are independent of age, and I've I've always known this to be true. I've had I've had folks working for me going back as far as twenty years that uh, were um, septuagenarians that ran you know complicated sequel marriage you know exercises to generate reports and um, pulling tables together from different sources, helping with data models and stuff. And then you'd walk down the hall to somebody who's in their late forties and then say, I'm too old to understand this computer stuff. (laughs) You know, so so it's, it's a mindset more than an age related thing, but it's a mindset that that tends, tends to be associated with age and generation. Um, just because there tends to be more commonalities there. So, I think getting back to the real question, you know, and, and the trust side of it with the younger members, um, there's certainly going to be an element of of younger members entering professions that lack a, an amount of trust because of the famed feud between millennials and boomers mm-hmm. <laughs> that, that Gen Xers like myself have utterly failed at, at <laughs> mitigating it. Uh, and managing the expectations of so far. And in a way, it's kind of amusing that this this is kind of a thing in, in our in our culture, but it's there. I mean, there's there going to be some of that, but I think to give that too much credit um, as a, a root cause 
um, would be dangerous. I think it really, the, the, the thing to understand is what are the differences in perspectives that is really underneath these emotions? There might be, um, you, you get that first impression of an organization if you're entering into a career. And your first impression might be that this is an organization that is rooted in a bygone era, that you see the profession changing. And, um, you know, there, there may be truth in that, there may not be, depending on the organization and the profession. And the real challenge is um, making sure that you go out of your way to learn the, the real root causes, what is giving, what is causing that, that, that um, misperception or perception. And how, if at all, do you currently want to address it so that you could change that first impression as people come in and you know recapture them and have them be part of the workforce? I believe you can be any age and develop a lifelong commitment to an organization. Um, the things that drive to that result, I think, are just different today than they were 40, 50, 60 years ago. Yeah, you know, it's interesting when I think about you know, perceptions. And, and as you're talking, I'm, I'm, so I have a millennial daughter. Um, and it, it, I would say in general, um, she doesn't quite trust as easily as I do. And then you, you know, it comes down to in some ways that nature versus nurture argument, like, do we um, start from a position of trust, and then trust is lost? Or do we have to earn trust? Um, I think there's different, you know, kind of philosophies on that. I, you know, trust was at its highest during the Eisenhower administration in, in public institutions. And I was born during the Eisenhower administration. So I think that I was a part of a society in my, you know, kind of my early days of that was more trusting in general. I had more faith in institutions and that that, you know, trust continued to decline over my lifetime. But I, if the nurture argument is, is, you know, valid in any way, I was kind of nurtured in trust as I was coming up. Then I think about, you know, my daughter was in college during 9-11 um, and uh, she actually was still in college in, the, in graduate school um, during the recession. But I had a millennial board member point out to me over the weekend that if you just kind of track the the career history or what what millennials were experiencing um, in, from an economic perspective during uh, their early career, you know, stages and in kind of a lack of security in general, that it makes sense that um, that maybe they're more kind of wary of their professional associations. And I think the other thing that's also true about millennials, especially when we think about sources of information um, in the heyday of associations, which I would put in the, you know, kind of in the 70s and and into the 80s when we were seeing a lot of certification programs emerge in professional societies and, and joining, you know, was the thing you did. You supported your association. Um, there were very limited sources of information about, you know, the practice, if you will. So the association was kind of automatically that trusted source of of information and education about the association. Now, you know, we have so many different sources of information that I don't know, and, and I'd be interested in your perspective on this, but I don't know that associations hold that same kind of privileged position from a dispensing information, credible information that they held when there was less competition for providing that same information. 
Yeah, I would agree with that. I think, um, you know, there's associations, every association that I've been involved with has at one point or another um, tried to carry the label if it's with the voice of Mm -hmm. profession X, Y, Z. And um, and it was. And, you know, there there could be any number of of, uh, things that that might mean. And um, what has happened to a number of organizations who held that is um well time has has sort of taken that away from them because they everybody in that heyday in the 70s and 80s established themselves as an authority and um forgot to think that anybody might ever challenge that authority and particularly you know some professions are are more susceptible uh, than others some some professions might um, just naturally be less organized and less cohesive and less uh, society minded, less of a collective than others. And and those organizations, particularly, you could have individuals in the profession um, that can aggregate or individually into new uh, in sources of information. And I've I've seen a number of places where members of an organization can challenge the credibility of the entire organization because they end up gaining their own audience and platform because they've been more uh, proficient at utilizing mm-hmm. modern technologies and platforms to do that. That's, that's, you know, there are, there are people um, in, you know, recent organizations that I've been with that have access to audiences that are on par with the organization itself and um, might not always agree with the, that the, the the organization's strict interpretation of any specific issue, and so I think I think there's this it's, there's certainly an opportunity there for the role of the association to be legitimately challenged by a small number of people who may or may not be really good at developing these thoughts or ideas or directives, and, and you know sometimes these could be these could be the brightest people in an organization. Um, at times, uh, they can also be the most um, social media savvy in an organization. Mm-hmm. And those might not be congruent statements. They might they might be, in fact, not the same people um, that have both of those characteristics. And yeah, so I, th- I think there, there's an opportunity for organizations to remember to be nimble in this. And there's kind of a lesson here. And um, you know, the real question is, what do you do if you're if you find yourself in one of these many organizations that has lost a little bit of its uh, shine mm-hmm. in the eyes of those in the profession? Because there are other sources that you you might say are just as credible or differently credible or have a different perspective. Um, how, how do you how do you evolve into something that can regain that position and then and then make sure that you are near the center of, of that uh, mindset moving forward. That, and that's that, that can be very hard depending on the organization. Yeah, it's really interesting when you bring up, so this concept of influencer, uh, a lot of times we'll see, um, let's say professional influencers who have amassed a large audience, as you say, that is comparable to the membership of an association. Um, a lot of times they've amassed that audience by virtue of their relationship to the association, right? They may have held a position in the association and 
Um, you know, anybody that's tried to build a LinkedIn network, for example, knows it's super easy <laughs> to be able to just, you know, send out these invitations and just grab people from association um, LinkedIn sites or whatnot. So they amass that and, you know, then they become by virtue of the fact that people are connected to them and watching them, they become influencers. And yet the, the level of vetting of information is very different from a professional association. However, their information tends to be more immediate. And so there's a sense of, I, I mean, I'm I'm thinking this is true, but challenge me on this if you don't, that to a certain extent, immediacy of delivery of content uh, creates an authority in essence. If somebody can, you know, get out there often and fast, whereas the association might be releasing information in a more kind of um, conservative manner, that, that fast and out there person gains credibility. Um, because of the delivery. I think, yeah, I, I, I would not disagree with that at all. Um, there's absolutely uh, something that, that has happened. Um, and I, I actually think this hurts trust. But mm -hmm. uh, unfortunately, what, what happens is our current very influencer-driven approach to any, you know, pick a topic, anything. You could, you, could, you could find this from what hammer should I buy to who mm -hmm. should I vote for for president, everything in the middle. Uh, you, could, you have somebody talking about it. And for people who have not been disciplined in how they curate their, their connections, you know, in any network or in real life, um, you know, it's really easy to surround yourself with a bubble of people who um, think the same way or, or want to believe the same things you believe. And that makes it very hard to remember to, to consider the, the, the trustworthiness or the accuracy mm -hmm. of information here. And it makes it very tempting to latch onto the first thing that agrees with something that is comfortable to your mind's preconceptions, uh, you know, on either any side of any issue, this is going to happen to, and I've said, watch it happen to people. And individuals who tend to be very good at using social media or any other platform tend to be very good at, at presenting an idea that in, in a particular light that um, agrees with their philosophy or their, their view of, of, of a thing. And, and, and the people who latch on to that are very comfortable with that. And then there's another group of people that kind of maybe are put off by it because they could see that there's something about it that doesn't quite add up. And and by the time you can validate that what's mm -hmm. right and what's wrong, the perception's already been out there about the wrong information. And so yeah. associations being more conservative, um, you know, I, I think the, the, the challenge, the trust challenge there is it's hard to trust that you're going to get timely information from an association. You might be able to trust that you're going to get accurate information from an association, but that's going to depend on, your perspective on those issues. You might you might have a bias towards somebody who's um, you know more on the fringe of an idea. And um, you know, I guess I guess conversely, I don't know of any examples of this personally, but you might be in an organization that is itself more on the fringe of a of a, of a set of information or knowledge, um, and be the ones that are that are doing this. But um, you know, I think I think if you're looking at the, that influencer effect. The people who could get information, especially those who could get very quick, passionate information out about a thing, tend to be the ones that um, set the perspective of a group on that issue more more completely, 
even if that information is incorrect. And in the end, it's going to be what drives different um, different facets of any issue apart from each other, because uh, some will have stopped thinking about an issue and not be willing to revisit it and assume that, that, that their side of an argument has been correct uh, in perpetuity. And others will never forget that they were wrong yeah. <laughs> at some point. And, yeah, it, and, and yeah, and so it really does, it will drive to, you know, I think the further disintegration of social constructs around opinions of things. You know, it's really interesting. And I think that, I guess two things. One is that our confirmation bias, you know, whether we're out, out there kind of looking for those influencers that think the way that we think, or it, maybe the influencers are shaping the way we think and we like it, you know, we feel good about that means that we're less concerned in some ways about the accuracy of the information that we're getting. We don't hold that at, you know, kind of the premium that we used to. Um, And, you know, I hope that that's something that's cyclical, that we'll start to see a change in that. But it, you know, I, I think we're just continuing to double down on that effect that we're, you know, we're seeking out information that conforms to our perspectives already that just validates our perspectives and 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 kind of latching on to people um who share opinions as opposed to being able to um kind of seek out a, a diversity of opinions and kind of become smarter in the process of doing that when we talk about associations though do certifying bodies still have kind of a leg up in this regard that they're setting standards and then they're you know, kind of, uh, kind of validating the understanding of the people that they're certifying or the performance of the people that they're certifying and that those standards from a certification perspective still um, hold a lot of clout from um, a trust perspective? Uh, well, everybody who works for a certification board would say absolutely. Um, <laughs> that is the case. Um I think, I think what it's it's indeterminate. I, th- I think they probably are. Uh, my my impression, my mm-hmm. personal impression, is that that is probably still the case. Um, and I'm I'm, I'll I'll share that that I have full awareness that in every organization I've been involved with, there are a great many individuals who are um, diplomates or certificate mm-hmm. certificates or certified by whatever board it's been who are deeply dissatisfied with the certification process on any number of levels Mm -hmm. and that could be the initial certification the maintenance of certification um, fear for how what a lot of certifying boards are doing now which is moving away from high stakes exams every five ten eight four however many years to more of a longitudinal assessment approach um, all of this, you know, there, there's, there's, there's a lot of consternation around that, but I think, I think taking a step back and looking at how these are all approached, I think certifying boards generally do deserve credibility and trust, um, at least in terms of what they say that they do. Uh, and I could speak to that from the medical perspective. So I've, I've had experience working now with boards in four different areas of medicine and i have found that the individuals involved with creating the content and and managing the body of knowledge while sometimes they could be frustratingly slow to adapt to um, 
uh, I, I, you know, the contemporary practice and, and how it's evolving. So this practice in some areas of medicine, practice moves way faster than boards are ever going to be able to. And so they have to have catch up years and that, that, that might challenge their credibility at, at a certain points, the amount you could trust the quality. Um, but I also am a huge believer in the value of ac- academic discipline, which all of the boards I've worked with, I'm, 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 I've seen that in practice. They, they, they really do a great job of ensuring that what they are certifying, you could take it to the bank mm-hmm. um, for the most part. And it's been a long time since I've heard of, and uh, you know, the, the, the certification itself being the bone of contention in any liability cases um, in, in, in medical practice, it's always something else. And, and that's really where you go. The lawyers are the ones that are saying you are or are not compliant with the standards set by mm-hmm. a certifying body. And that's how lawyers and, and um, actuaries will assign liability. And that tells us all a lot about this because those are the ones taking it to the bank. Yeah. And it's it, when we get a certification, when we're certified, you know, that's in some ways like a badge of trustworthiness, that certification, that credential you know, communicate something to our employers or, you know, to other people that are interacting with us um, that, you know, theoretically helps to improve trust in what we're doing. Um, so it is, you know, it is interesting, although in the future, you know, if, are, it, will that still be true? Will certification still communicate trustworthiness um, or will that kind of crumble along with, you know, kind of other institutional trust um, challenges? So, you know, it is interesting. I think, you know, when we think about trust, kind of going back and and building trust, um, and you've been tackling it in a number of different layers, how do you take on the trust issue, let's say, that might exist between members and an association versus trust, if, you know, issues that may be related to staff and an employer? What what? How do you tackle you know, the many to one relationship when building trust? Well, I think, um, well, one, you you have to approach it with the understanding that um, it's going to take time Mm -hmm. and trust. There are, there are a few people out here. My wife is one of the people who, um, when she meets people, they start at a 100 and, Mm -hmm. uh, Experience may bring them down, and I, I'm I'm hopeful that I'm still in the 90s with her after 35 years. <laughs> uh, the you know then there are others that then I tend to be more the opposite of of um, my default is you start with zero and you're in your way mm-hmm. up. And, and but either way you you end up with um, you need history to change the initial assessment or the current assessment. And history uh, needs to be needs to involve transparency, honesty, and reliability. Uh, if you could do those things, then you will you will be trusted for good reasons. And, and can I add consistency to that then too? Yeah. To that list? Oh yeah, well yeah, I would. Yeah, I would say that we're saying the same thing. Yes, mm-hmm. uh, you need to be able to tell people um, to the most complete extent 
that is reasonable what you're going to do. And then you need to do what you said you were going to do without surprises. And then you need to make sure you listen to how that is received and then do it all over again <laughs> and repeat it. Um, and when you have done that, and as long as the, the audience, the members in this case, can connect collectively, not individually, but collectively, what they want from the organization in this case to what the organization is doing and whether or not it's successful is less important than it, than it's trying and it's working in a direction. But as long as the organization can show that it's aware of what the community of its members needs and is acting in the collective best interests of that community um, and showing them along the way that that's really why they exist, then trust will develop over time. Um, there's no, but there is no quick way to do it. You have to, if an organization has found itself um, where it's made, I know some organizations who've, who've made business deals that, that have called into question the fundamental credibility of the organization to mm -hmm. its members. And unfortunately, there's no real way to recover lost trust from something like that. If, if, if particularly if, the membership of an organization feels that the the board and the senior staff or whoever was involved in the decision-making process did not disclose or had some personal benefit or that the result of this um, may have been not in the best interest of the larger part of the collective. Um, all of those things can, can be very disruptive to an organization, which I think are the biggest reasons that organizations might lose trust quickly. Um, the other thing that might happen is uh, if you don't see that the organization is acting in the interests of the collective uh, appropriately, then you'll have less engagement and increased apathy. And as apathy sinks in, it develops into not really mistrust, but a lack of trust. And you don't, you don't trust things that you don't have some emotion towards, you know, the presence of, actual trust implies some amount of investment in that relationship and so if you don't have that investment you're never going to have trust um, and so i would say that you're taught you have to tie engagement and um you know the relationship the overall relationship with membership members is is essential here to to, to achieve it and <clears throat> yeah so i think as long as you have that kind of perspective towards trust is something that is um, it's ethereal, um, but it's also hard as a rock, <laughs> you know, and um, it can it can change from one to the other in a single interaction, um, and sometimes it can't change from one to the other in a thousand interactions. It really does depend on individuals and the 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 the, the, the way that you comport yourself. Um, yeah, but I mean, it's, it's an interesting challenge. I mean, we're my current organization. I said, you know, I, I don't, I want to revisit what I said at the beginning because I mm -hmm. may have implied that there's, there's all of these problems everywhere. You know, we were a great organization. We have wonderful members. They, you know, and um, one of the things that, that I can say has definitely held us back as an organization is 
there have been earned trust challenges um, in specific situations. And, um, you know, so one of the things that, that we, you know, when we worked earlier in the year, it was to begin to establish a norm among our, our leadership that you can build trust on. It was to explore how our board itself needed to comport in the conduction of its business over the course of its term in a way that would engender trust and confidence amongst members. And um, for the most part, the feedback we have received as a result of those efforts has been very positive. I've seen that actually work. I've seen the way that our board communicates evolve and, um, you know, it, it's a process. It, you have to develop changing culture is not something you decide to do. It's something you show you can do and it takes time. Mm-hmm. And and in a way, that's really what we're doing is we have to have a culture that where trust is important and it is um, sought out and nurtured. Yeah, I think that trust is one of those core cultural values we see a lot. Just how do we um, really live that, you know, become somewhat of an issue. And, you know, going back to this concept of engagement and trust, um, it's an interesting relationship, right? Because that, again, that concept of all trust is local doesn't necessarily mean that we we know the people that we're trusting. Um, so I'm thinking about association members who um, trust the organization, but engagement is likely to increase trust as long as you know we're we're exhibiting trustworthy behaviors, right? That that interaction um, between members and the association is likely to build trust if the association values trust, understands trust, and and exhibits the those trusting behaviors. Um, back to the organization, we talked about transparency, you know, being one, mm-hmm. and and it is interesting when we think about boards too members. I was working with a board this weekend that I've worked with over the course of a number of years, and they do really good work that their members know nothing about. Right. Because boards aren't used to necessarily kind of tooting their own horns. They're there to serve. Um, They, you know, people are aware of who's on the board. They're not necessarily aware of, you know, all of the conversations and interactions that they're having. And, you know, and I thought it was interesting because I was saying to them, you need to be, you know, kind of more transparent to your members, not because they were holding back, but because um, they almost didn't want the the attention of, you know, saying, hey, this is what we're doing. Yeah, it's interesting. You do kind of need to have have a little bit of um, a show personship Mm -hmm. in this. You need to be willing to be out and in front of an audience and and, and demonstrating the value. Um, and that might feel a, a bit um, a bit like you're bragging or mm-hmm. you're you know, it, it, I can see why that might be di- difficult for some people. I've um, I've been fortunate that that the board, people on the boards of the organizations I've been with have not suffered from this um, okay. shyness. <laughs> um, but I, I could, I have a little bit of it myself. And so I could, yeah. I could certainly empathize for, for those that might find themselves in, in, in the situation where 
you need to encourage your board member to actually um, take more credit and yeah. and um, talk more about the things that they've done that have helped the organization or let the organization highlight them. Uh, we always we one thing that we try to do is is um, in in my current my last organization for sure is highlight the successes of not just our board but different different significant members and sometimes not you know not well known members but but find stories specifically that um, you see a member doing the right thing mm-hmm. and doing it well and give them the attention for that and. Um, you know, one you might you might you show that you celebrate the things that are valuable to the organization, and that that helps. Um, and you might get the benefit of um, developing or furthering the potential of a of a current or future leader of the organization in the process. So you you build loyalty when you do this too. Yeah, I think you know, in general, as people, we're very literary in the sense that we're interested in people's stories. And when the association highlights members that um, have a story to tell and that they would not otherwise, the, the other members of the association wouldn't otherwise know that story, it's very powerful because it, it, it then also connects you to the organization in a way. You're reading that story and you're saying, yes, and I'm a member of the same organization. Um, and it, you know, you develop that sense of pride, which I think is, is really important too. So um, kind of, as a final thought, tell me, are you optimistic or pessimistic about the, you know, the future of um, associations from a trust perspective with our members? Oh, I'm unsure uh, to me. If I really think about it, it's hard. I'm I'm optimistic. Um, I think there's definitely an opportunity for us to move past this. The, the trick is going to be, uh, at least I think for the organizations that I've been involved with, separating the, um, the influence of trust on a broader social level and uh, you know, separating that from the trust that people have for their own professional organization. I think that that needs to be a place where um, associations capitalize on a on a on an opportunity to be a credible, trusted source for their audience and show that it can do things. Knowing that there's it's never going to be perfect, and depending on issues, you you're going to have split audiences and different issues, and you have to be careful about how to navigate that. But I think that there is a um, there's a real opportunity for associations to demonstrate their uh, worthiness of trust by advocating for a neutral slate of standards of improvements of advocacy initiatives of any number of things that is for the betterment of the profession of those that they that are their members and um you know so i think it's for most organizations, it's it's their game to lose at this point. They they just need to you know they 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 can they can maintain it. Um, the generational divide is something that's going to be very real, and the the tricky part is going to be having a transition that 
allows them to bring in younger members while not completely disenfranchising the ones who've been around for decades. Um, and so you're going to be trading trust in that scenario, I think, is the inevitable future. Or you're going to see new organizations born that have a slightly different perspective and and, and will eventually replace existing organizations. Um, there, there may be some examples of that already happening in some industries. And, um, you know, so, so yeah, while, while I think that I think, I think that things that, that support trust socially are going to face an increasing number of challenges. Mm-hmm. Um, there is an opportunity for associations to be a beacon, uh, in, you know, what is a darker time for trust and, um, you know, so I'll be I'll be optimistic on this. I think if I, if I narrow the lens down to associations alone, I, I will I will say I am optimistic. I think there's 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 a real chance that that we can do it. Um, I have to, otherwise, I'm there's no point in me coming to work. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so um, you know, broader society things, uh, it's going to be harder. Um, yeah. You know, it, it's ironic because from a distance, um, you, you mentioned earlier the trust in institutions you know, being higher back mm-hmm. in Eisenhower's. And I think I think that they've been. I would agree with that. Is that the trust in institutions is far lower today than than when I was younger. And um, I think that that you know, what's been interesting for me is even even for me who I try to be very aware of these things and I try to not to sort of take on different things. But I've also recognized that there have been times in my life where I've been um, harsh and 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 the bias I've applied towards people who would choose to work for the government, for instance, in any agency. And uh, one of the things that I'm very grateful for is the work I've done in my past three organizations has afforded me the opportunity to get to know people who I would say are bureaucrats who work mm-hmm. in agencies, who would be those... Um, you know, probably the people sitting in the cubicle that you think of as your average government employee and um, almost without exception and across many different agencies of government, I have um, not failed to be just wonderfully impressed with the quality of intellect and um, capabilities of the people who choose to work in these roles and it really got to the point where I was like, well, you know, um, we may not like what public institutions do uh, as a whole entity, um, but we probably have misplaced frustrations onto the workforce of those institutions yeah. and, and made assumptions about the quality of the people in those workforces. Because I can tell you, I've worked with people in the VA and the Health Resources Services Administration and the DOD and NIOSH and OSHA um, on Capitol Hill and NASA. And um, these are some of the smartest human beings I know. And they not only know the, the, the details in and out of their professions, but they understand how that applies to the regulatory and governmental aspects uh, that lay on top mm-hmm. of it. And that's the part where you know, I think even the smartest of this of us, um, our heads would explode if we had to look at the way you can accomplish things that from a professional 
perspective within a government construct. Um, that part is very hard, and I I could not do those jobs. I really admire them, and I I've spent some time recently sort of thinking I've been a little bit harsh in my lack of faith, at least in the workforce of government. And you know, once you get away from the politics side of it, yeah, just doing the work. These folks are fantastic. We should have more faith in these institutions and in their spirit. And I see that also with the absolute frustration of the confusing nature of the mess- messaging we got out of the CDC for the past three years. Yeah. Um, which I think is an exception and, a, and really a, a tragic, unfortunate event. Um, you know, that that they failed to rise to the challenge of addressing the nuance of information as it evolved. And that hurt their credibility. And I, I think deservedly so. So, well, and a um, lot of these folks are our members too, in different associations that we're working with. And I even think you yeah. could extend what you're saying, um, you know, with government um, people that work in, in bureaucracies or in government agencies to even our healthcare workforce, where there's been a decline in in trust, even you know, with uh, our healthcare workers. And you look at the amount of violence that we're seeing, for example, in hospital settings right now. Um, yeah. That the decline of trust impacts our members in a very real way too. And I think, you know, just in summary, what I've learned from you both, you know, in working with you, but also in talking with you today is that addressing, you know, trust issues from a very intentional perspective. So not just assuming, you know, that everybody trusts you, but really taking a look at it and then, you know, trying to figure out how do we, how do we maintain or how do we improve trust with our various constituencies is absolutely important right now because we obviously can't take that trust for granted at this stage in our history, or it's a mistake, let's say, to take it for granted um, at this stage. So, Bill, thank you so much for your time and your insights today. If um, people would like to continue the conversation with you, how can they get a hold of you? That's a great question. I think the best way to get a hold of me is probably either through my profile on LinkedIn um, or uh, they can they can reach out to me at my work email. Um, okay. That that I'll, I'll, it's just bill at aana.com. Um, if they want to reach out, that's fine. Now uh, yep. I'd be happy to have more conversations about this. Well, that's great, and thanks to all of our listeners as well. If you'd like to meet more leaders like Bill Bruce, then I'd like to encourage you to consider joining .org Community. .org Community connects you to a vibrant network of association executives and partners. And to learn more about .org Community, just go to dot or to orgcommunity.com. Thanks again, Bill. We really appreciate the time that you spent with us today. It was my pleasure. Thank you for having me, Sharon. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this episode and discovered tips and information that will add value to your leadership style and your association. .org Source specializes in positioning teams for success with solutions for technology, strategy, and marketing. Please contact us at info at orgsource.com or visit www.orgsource.com to find out how to keep your organization on track to Association 4.0.